Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk about something special because we're going to talk about culture, leadership, intercultural management, because we have a a great guest today, Elizabeth. And uh, Elizabeth is a professor and she's been teaching MBA and EMBA students at Wharton School of Business. And also she worked in China, in Notre Dame, many other universities and Her specialty is intercultural management and leadership. So we're going to learn about that because it's related to your businesses when you want to scale it up and you often need to go international. So also, as you are growing, sometimes creating your unique and coherent culture is an afterthought and maybe it shouldn't be. So those sort of things we're going to touch on and more. So welcome, Elizabeth. How are you today? Thank you, Rudy. I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Great stuff. So tell us a little bit more about your background and how has your journey in intercultural management and leadership has been so far? Thank you, Rudy. I am fortunate that I'm able to pursue my passion. And I think the most exciting aspect of my career for these past 20 plus years has been the quality and caliber of people with whom I've interacted. And I feel that while I have brought my expertise to the business departments around the world and in various universities, it's what I've learned from my students. So it's been a more of a, a dialogue than a didactic experience. All right. Now, let's move on and dive into this a little bit. I've done a micro course on Emeritus Insights recently based on a book by Jim Collins on Build to Last. And basically, in this book, Jim Collins defines visionary companies as the ones that outperform their peers over decades, but their key to their success was reliance on the core company and the ideology and balancing continuity and progress over de- decades. How do you think American companies handle working with different cultures when they have expanded worldwide? Because in on his list, by the way, most of those companies are American. And that's a loaded question, Rudy, but thank you for asking that. I actually think Colin's book, like you said, written in the 90s, was visionary, and it still relates to today, how many decades later. So I think his insights are quite accurate then and today. For better or worse, the U.S. has dominated international markets because of the language, science, technology, business, and currently considered the world's superpower. Whether you are doing business at home or abroad, we live in a multicultural society, multicultural world. 
And I think because of the U.S. location, we only have Canada on the north and Mexico on the south. We haven't had to interact across languages, cultures, and borders. So there's less of a focus on understanding different perspectives. So U.S. organizations bring this thinking abroad. What works at home will work abroad. We could look at how Walmart expanded into Germany and their failure with all of the different cultural aspects of doing business in a different culture. But then they learned from their mistakes and they did better in China. And I've lived in China. I lived right near a Walmart. And it's very interesting because it's very different from a U.S. Walmart. We could look at Target and how when Target expanded into Canada, they assumed that the Canadian perspective of their customers would be the same as in the U.S. And Canada is a different culture. It's more similar to the U.S. than, say, Germany. But because the organization did not have this global nuanced perspective, they failed. So it's understandable how an organization can have a cult-like approach to doing business abroad. If we look at Disney and how they expanded to Shanghai, to Paris, Having an insular view and an ethnocentric or we know what's best because it works for us at home. If you have this ethnocentric perspective, you don't realize that you have to do things differently because it's not just taking your business model. It's adapting that business model locally to the culture and to the people so that both perspectives and expectations are met. Right. Now, turning over to startups, as I mentioned before, they often in early stages just simply struggle to survive. So perhaps they are not thinking about building their company culture until they grow up, but they then maybe it's too late. So can you concisely and purposely create a company culture that you would want? And what's a better or what's a worse company culture? Or is there such a thing? Another great question, and I appreciate the insight underlying this question, Rudy. As a solopreneur myself, it takes up all my time just to get my business running. But I think that company culture emanates from the leadership team, from the founders. For example, if I value kindness, compassion, and gratefulness, and hire people who hold similar optimism and commitment to treating people well, it will trickle down and be infused within the organization. But I've seen how once a startup begins to grow and more people are added on, board members, volunteers, etc., you lose the ability to have control over attitudes. And you can't control someone's attitude. The whole foundation of culture is that we all have values, beliefs, and attitudes that create our worldview. Culture is the foundation 
upon which we all behave and interact. We've got values, beliefs, attitudes, the norms for living, what's accepted and expected. We can't control those of other people. We can begin to learn about them so that having that broad-mindedness, you are trying to, on the one hand, create a vision and a mission for your startup, but also on the other hand, you are being able to think about once you grow, how are you going to manage the diversity of the culture in which you work, as well as the diversity on your payroll? Right, because uh, the things change uh, quite a bit uh, once you grow up. I spoke to Hassan from Monfido, who is a, f- a founder of a, a unicorn, and I asked him, when did you stop knowing every of your employees' names? And he said, oh, I think I, I stopped at 50 or something like that. So you also have a just a limit what you can handle, and uh, you need, and the culture can help you there to manage it once the company is bigger, right? Yes, and if you have this attitude of being open-handed and hiring people who you expect to do a good job and breed healthy and wholesome environments, and if you and your leadership team understand the importance of not just the functional aspects of doing business, but the communication and the intercultural competence aspects, you're going to do well. And as an example, having worked for over 20 years in some of the top business schools around the world, I have always emphasize the importance that it doesn't mean that one has to be the best at what they do. You have to be the best at understanding yourself and understanding others. Because if you can't work and play well with others, you're not going to be as good as you think. You might be the best coder or the best at cybersecurity, or the best at creating new types of artificial intelligence. But if you don't understand who you are, and you don't understand who other people are, and you bring that human, and you don't bring that human element into the functional day-to-day aspects of doing business, you will not succeed. And that's so important because business schools focus on the quantitative and I focus on the qualitative. The soft skills of leadership are really the hardest skills to learn and to embrace. Right. So for people listening in, pay attention to leadership and teamwork within your business when you're growing your business but the business operates in a wider context right then so my next question is about how do you do business in a world that seems to be in a permanent crisis for the last two plus years right yes we've had an unprecedented time in history everyone talks about 
this being the new normal, I might go so far as to say the new abnormal. And we've reached a tipping point. And there used to be this commercial in the U.S. that said, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. It was one of those companies that sell devices that an elderly person can wear around their, their neck and call for help. And it's, it's something that, that I used for my parents. It was very useful to be able to keep track of them when I couldn't be with them. But I think we have fallen and we cannot get up because we don't know what to do. We live in a VUCA world. VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And what I do in my coaching and cons consulting, I emphasize a developmental approach with engaging cultural differences. And that includes three things. First, developing a deeper awareness of yourself and others. Second, becoming less judgmental of the differences of others. And third, being able to understand someone else's perspective from their perspective rather than focusing on your own. And I strongly believe we can only be successful if we're able to step outside of ourselves and see the view, the, the big picture, to view ourselves within that big picture as only a piece of the picture, not the picture itself. And we all think we have answers to everything, and it's always based upon our beliefs and values. And we're unwilling to attempt to understand what someone else's values and beliefs are. However, what I do with my clients, it's not about changing those values and beliefs. It's simply being able to develop that awareness, figure out how to be less judgmental, and learn perspective shifting so that you can hear someone out and try to understand them, whether you agree with them or not. It's more of recognizing how they think and believe and act in their work. So judgmental, it really reminds me of the time when I took a Myers-Briggs test when I was at INSEAD. I think yeah. that there are really good assessment tools out there, and that's one of the competencies I've developed over the last, I would say, 15 years, is becoming an expert on a variety of cross-cultural assessment tools, because we need to step outside of our perception of what we perceive and where we perceive we're at with our skills and be able to take a more objective developmental perspective and assessment tools such as I use one called the <clears throat> Intercultural Development Inventory. And it helps us to understand on a continuum how we engage with cultural differences and similarities. And when we use assessments and if we are willing to learn some things about ourselves, even if they're negative, and we're open to accepting the fact that none of us is perfect, then we have tremendous chance for growth. 
And this is what I do with my executives all the time. I don't simply come in and teach about cross-cultural communication and management skills and perspective shifting. I use assessment tools. There, It's like doing a 360-degree evaluation. You're getting lots of different data points. And with that input, you're able to see how others see you. If you're willing and open to working on some of your areas for improvement, then the sky is the limit. And this tool that I use, Rudy, it's life-changing. I, I first took it about 15 years ago, didn't like my results because I came out in the middle on this continuum. And as an interculturalist and someone who really cares about people, I was brought up with kindness, compassion, and generosity in treating others. But it was trying to show me some of those blind spots. And we get into this cycle where we can first deny that there are differences. And this could be conscious or unconscious. In the world today, we could say, I, I don't have any bandwidth to deal with global issues wherever they are, wherever you are and wherever the global issues are. It's all a matter of where you live in the world. And it could be simply because our bandwidth is just stretched too far. Or it could be that we're consciously trying to not have to deal with differences such as political differences because it upsets us so much. And when we deny things, we can then become defensive. And this leads to polarization. It's an us versus them. If you don't agree with me and look at it my way, then you're a bad person. And that's what's happening in society today with social media. We immediately vilify others as we seek to affirm our belief and project them on others. And the third thing is when we minimize differences. We don't want to deny them. We don't want to polarize and become defensive. We, there's this shift and we want to be open and accepting and inclusive. So we try to look only for the commonalities and say, we're all human, so we're all the same. But this is a fallacy that highlights the similarities and enforces universal values and principles for all. Unfortunately, this masks the deeper recognition and appreciation of cultural differences. And that means being able to acknowledge the differences and in essence say, I see you for who you are. It's not about pointing out differences such as someone, someone's ethnicity or race or ability or disability or gender identity, but it's acknowledging that everybody has different backgrounds, life experiences, personalities, and that's what's made everyone unique and individual. And I think it's so important that every single one of us, if we want to succeed in what we're doing, whether it's in, in fintech or investment banking or a startup for an NGO, 
we need to become more aware of who we are, put that into context of understanding who other people are and learning something about them, and then beginning to alter our behavior and how we react to others who think, believe, and behave differently than we do. So building on what you just said, you also wrote on LinkedIn recently that acceptance doesn't mean agreement. So Mm -hmm. how do you make that, that it's clear across different cultures? And what do you mean by acceptance doesn't mean agreement? That's a great point. And thank you for, for reading my LinkedIn posts. I like to be able to look at current world events and approach them from this developmental model of intercultural communication in order to try to be objective. As all of us, we have those worldviews and it's hard to be objective. But what I teach, what I facilitate with working with executives is how can we look at it from another perspective? Know what your perspective is. Try to shift to somebody else's. And acceptance is the name of one of the stages and in this assessment tool. And acceptance, one is able to recognize the fact that different cultural worldviews exist. They are able to understand the complexity And I think the term acceptance, it's misleading because you don't have to agree with, endorse, or condone values or behaviors of other people in different cultures. It simply means there's a recognition that people have reasons for why they do what they do. And it's all about context. All the great points. We need to appreciate other people and other people's differences and then move from there. Uh, Now... You also mentioned that you experimented or you worked with many of the frameworks when it comes to intercultural management and many practitioners and and academics in this field, they started with work of Gerd Hofstede. So why do you agree with Gerd Hofstede regarding his views on intercultural management and where do you differ? Another great question, Rudy. Thank you. I really enjoy the work of Professor Hofstadter, not only because he was a brilliant psychologist and statistician, but also an amazing, humble, kind-hearted human being. And Hofstadter is credited with beginning the field of cross-cultural management. He did some groundbreaking work back in the 1970s, creating a scientific theory about cultural dimensions as a way to systematically break down cultures into similarities and differences. And by doing that, it helps us appreciate the natural, the cultural variations that exist between groups of people that form societies. And he wrote a groundbreaking book in the 1980s with this prolific research that's contributed valuable insight into cultural patterns across society. He didn't, in his initial work, he was a psychologist working at IBM, and he didn't set out to create cultural dimensions. He was given 
a huge amount of data, over 100,000 surveys from IBM employees and subsidiaries around the world. And he started to analyze it and looked at how people have similarities and differences across cultures. He found certain themes. And then he called these dimensions because there's a range. It's not just everything set in stone, monolithic. There's a range of how people will react to power, to individual or collective, how people handle time, how they deal with ambiguity, etc. What I would say is that this is only a starting point. We can generally say that countries like the UK or Germany or Indonesia or China and Hong Kong, where I have lived, might be similar or different to other cultures based upon the area where they are in the world, as well as the the philosophers who influence the societies. And we have to remember that people are individuals first. We have unique personalities as well as backgrounds. So there's going to be a wide range of differences within society. So I take this sound, scientifically validated and reliable research performed by Hofstadter, and it's actually been revalidated and reconfirmed over the years with science, social scientists showing the positive and the negative, a, a huge debate out there. How can you assess, measure a culture? But I take these data points and I combine them with the assessment tools that I work with executives so that we can get an objective assessments of a person's individual communication preferences, work style, workplace styles, and even how they react to cultural differences. It's not enough to know about cultural norms, and that's a great foundation. But I like to take it a step further and bring it into a person's individual and unique experience so that we can understand the similarities and differences. For example, I've lived in China and we can look at China as, oh, it's a big country and everyone's the same. Everyone's not the same. Yes, there is a general culture in China with norms for living. However, you are going to find were people where they may not even speak Mandarin, the, the national language, because they live in Guizhou and they speak a dialect or a completely different language in their mountain farming village. And I've experienced this, trying to interact with people with my limited Mandarin, and they just stare at me and I have to, to style switch and realize, oh my goodness, I need to get on their level and be able to interact using their language. How can I pivot and how can I use this self-awareness, this other awareness in order to interact with people from their perspective on their level and not on mine? 
Great stuff, understood. Now, before we wrap up, I have just two easy questions for you. One is, can you recommend further reading on some of the topics we touched upon? Yes, I can. And perhaps this is self-serving, but my the second edition of my book published by Routledge, Intercultural Communication for Global Business, How Leaders Communicate for Success, is, I think, a great way to start to learn about how to communicate across cultures, within your culture, within your business, and even within yourself, a meta-communication exercise in thinking about who you are and who others are and, and how can I learn so that I can level up my leadership skills. There's a 20% coupon at my my online business, theinterculturalleader.com. And I welcome you to take a look at the other resources I have there. I have online asynchronous courses that also include once a week one-on-one coaching. And I'm actually going to be launching later this year a course on that's based on the book, And I know it's going to be a great success because that was one of the courses I developed and led at the University of Notre Dame. Thank you. So I'm going to put the links into the show notes or check it out and uh, go to the Intercultural Leader and check out the book and you get the 20% off. One last question is, what's the best way to reach out and find out more? We talked about the website, of course, but in addition to that, I know you're very active on LinkedIn. What is the best way to get in touch and follow you? I would say follow me on LinkedIn. I am posting regularly about issues happening around the world based upon how do we look at this from a cross-cultural perspective and how can we engage in perspective shifting. So I'd say find me on LinkedIn, visit my website, and join one of my classes. It's amazing. The people who who join. I had a former CEO in technology from the UK who is involved in a, a cohort. Right now I have change management, a change management consulting company along with a PR company. And it's a real international group. And I think the best thing is that people are connecting with each other and finding ways to deal with challenges and solve the problems that they face on a day-to-day basis. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And as I said, I will put the links to your website and to the book in the show notes. Thank you, everybody, for listening as well and thinking about the company culture, intercultural management, leadership, and communication as well when you're building your businesses or when you're looking at the businesses that uh, you would like to uh, back I think it is very important just as much as the code as well. So soft stuff that shouldn't be forgotten. Thanks again, Elizabeth. Thank you, Rudy. It's a pleasure. And thank you to everyone else. Please stay safe and stay well wherever you are in the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. 
If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at voiceofintech.com. Happy to hear from you. Thank you.